Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck has held many positions in the federal government, including head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, the United States Attorney for Eastern District of Virginia and Southern District of Texas, counsel to FBI Director Robert Mueller, and chief of staff to Deputy Attorney General Jim Comey. Chuck, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Chuck, you have about as an impressive a background of anyone that I've ever met that spent a career in law enforcement. So I was wondering if you could not so much tick through all the different jobs that you've held, but tell us sort of your path to being what you became. I have a lot of students who listen to this, and I always tell them that there's no straight line to achieving one's objectives. And so I always like the guests to tell us a little bit about their journey. Yeah, there is no straight line, Michael. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. I think in my case, there was a perseverance uh, and luck. You know, if you really want one of these jobs, you have to get a little bit lucky and you have to be willing uh, to put yourself out there. When you're in law school, it's easy to get a job in some fancy law firm, but that is manifestly not what I wanted. And so you sort of have to make your own way, as you well know. Um, the only thing I really wanted to be was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, that's why I went to law school. And I got incredibly lucky to do it in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is where uh, I, I lived. And the other stuff, I think, was mostly fortuitous, Michael. So when you came out of law school, did you apply into the honors program at the Justice Department? I did. Mediocre grades and all. I applied for the honors program. Uh, miraculously, they took me. Um, I started at um, the tax division, which is somewhat ironic since I, I'm not capable of filling out my own tax return. And within about a year, I got sent over to the Eastern District of Virginia as a special assistant U.S. attorney and then ultimately got hired in that district. And then the rest is history. You, you ultimately became the United States attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, which must have been an unbelievable um, rush. You know, it was. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, the best job still far and away was being an assistant U.S. attorney. And the way I describe it to people, as an AUSA, you get to see nothing and do everything. And as a U.S. attorney, you get to see everything and do nothing. Um, and frankly, being the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia is not that hard a job uh, because you have a really talented bench. The men and women in that office are very, very good at what they do. And so you support them in any, in any way that you can. Um, you also act as a liaison to the federal law enforcement community, to the judges, to the defense bar. Um, but mostly it's like, uh, you know, coaching the Chicago Bulls when they had Michael Jordan. Every now and then you get off the bench and you say, nice shot, Michael, and you sit back down. Yeah. I remember when I joined the Justice Department, I came from the outside. I had been a defense attorney and I was hired in as the chief of litigation, which was ironic because I hadn't ever prosecuted anybody. And the person who should have held the job um, was a person I knew. And before I accepted, I called him and I said, why don't you want to be chief of litigation? Why don't you want to, you know, step up and, and assume this title? And sort of apropos to what you said, he said, oh, no, Michael, 
all you're going to do is go to meetings, whereas I am going to be able to continue to try cases. And, and, and he said, I, I would not want that job if offered it, which, which it was. You know, to, to between being a line assistant U.S. attorney and U.S. attorney, I was a manager in the Eastern District of Virginia. I ran the major crimes unit. And that gave me a taste of, you know, sort of stepping off the line and being uh, a manager and doing things that were not as much fun. Uh, and it's a conscious decision. And some people I, I know well and uh, respect tremendously just don't want to do that. They want to be in court. And I understand it. I get it. That's the fun part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. So in our careers, we both worked for one Robert Mueller, you at the Bureau and I in the Justice Department. We both counseled to him. And so while today I want to talk principally about the number two impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump, I was wondering if we could take a step back in time, and it seems like forever ago that the Mueller report was the topic uh, du jour, and ask you if you wouldn't mind to talk with me about the Mueller report, because what I found sort of confusing, and I've gone back and forth in my sort of acceptance of it, was his determination to not make a charging decision. He said um, the report, his Mueller report, does not conclude that the president committed a crime, but it does not exonerate him. And we're going to leave it there. It's not normal that prosecutors um, sort of punt in a, in a sense. Mostly they decide to bring a charge or they decline to bring a charge. So when you read this and have had time like me to think about it over the years, how, how do you process it? What's your thinking? Yeah, I have two reactions, or I should say at least two reactions. One is I'm a bit frustrated um, by that formulation and um, in some ways, you know, wish that the Mueller team was at liberty to say uh, precisely what I think ought to be said, that the president committed crimes that were outlined in volume two of the report related to obstruction of justice. But more than the frustration, uh, Michael, I think they got it exactly right. This is not a normal criminal investigation. This is not a typical subject or defendant. Under Department of Justice policy, you cannot charge a sitting president. And so you can't really analogize it to what prosecutors normally do. If you can't charge the president while he's president, then you ought not to say that he committed a crime because that's unfair too. Right. Simply putting out in the public domain, you know, your belief that somebody committed a crime and then not charging that person and not affording them the opportunity to defend themselves uh, in a public way, in a public court, in a public trial, I think is unfair. And so, A, I'm frustrated and B, I completely get it. And I think they threaded the needle and I think they did it the right way. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I when I read this and I, I was teaching um at the Institute of Politics at the time. And my, I was looking over my slides in, pre in preparation for our conversation. And I wrote that what Mueller decided was that it would be fundamentally unfair to essentially accuse somebody of a crime, but not give them a forum 
to defend themselves, much in the same way you don't name a person by name as an unindicted co-conspirator because as an unindicted co-conspirator, they don't get their day in court to clear their name. So here you've tarnished them without giving them uh, redress. And I guess that's what we're both sort of seeing this as. But it was incredibly frustrating because as I read volume two of the Mueller report, the conduct seemed to amount to obstruction of justice. It seemed that there was a, a viable obstruction of justice case, notwithstanding Attorney General Barr's decision to the contrary. More than that, I think there was a compelling obstruction of justice case, and that in the ordinary course with an ordinary defendant, um, they would have been charged, uh, they would have been convicted, uh, and they would have been incarcerated. I mean, you and I were both prosecutors, Michael. We brought obstruction of justice cases. Uh, sometimes I wish I had as much evidence in the cases that I brought and brought successfully as the Mueller team unearthed and reported in volume two. But again, Department of Justice policy is clear. Uh, and that policy was not a Trump administration policy, as you well know. Uh, the policy that you don't charge, can't charge a sitting president, uh, emanated both from the Nixon administration and from the Clinton administration. And you can like it or dislike it. You could agree with it or disagree with it. But that was the policy that the Mueller team had to live with. And given that fact, uh, I think they got it right and they did it the right way. Yeah, the one thing in the pushback that I have had in talking about this is people have said, well, two things. The Office of Legal Counsel opinion is just that. It's their opinion about whether the law permits a sitting president to be indicted. It's not a statement of law. It's not a judicial determination. It's just a group of lawyers who've opined on um whether this is doable. And then second, while the special counsel regulations do say that the special counsel should act within the framework of the way DOJ prosecutors act, they also are completely independent. If they weren't, there'd be no need to have appointed them. And so the sort of uh, slavish um, sort of Reliance on OLC's opinions as a basis for not proceeding struck me sometimes when I think about it as as inappropriate, that they could have been more aggressive. And sometimes I default to say, well, but they were in the DOJ in theory and should follow those rules. Well, you're quite right that the OLC opinions are policy. They're not statute. Uh, absolutely true. But uh, in some ways, you can also think of Mueller as a subordinate Department of Justice official in his role as special counsel. Sure, he carries uh, a degree of independence, uh, but he still reports to the attorney general. The report he wrote uh, was intended for the attorney general by design. And so I don't see uh, Bob Mueller coloring outside the lines. I just don't. And uh, given that, you know, you can, uh, I, th I think it's fair to revisit whether we ought to have an independent counsel. Uh, like Ken Starr or a special counsel like Bob Mueller, both have their um, uh, merits, both have their faults. Neither model is perfect. But for people to suggest that Bob Mueller would have discarded longstanding Department of Justice policy and uh, made a finding or even charged the president without permission, I think just sort of misses who and what he is. Um, yeah. He's a rule follower. 
He followed the rules. And I, again, I think he got it right. It's interesting, too, in, in the following of those rules, what he says besides the fact that OLC policy um, exists to um, resist the charging of a sitting president, he said were he to charge a sitting president, it would preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. And I always read that as an invitation by Mueller to say there is substantial reason here, Congress, for you to look at whether his conduct rises to the level of a high crimes and misdemeanor impeachable offense. Yeah, I read it the same way. But again, uh, with the caveat, Michael, that Bob Mueller is writing a report to the attorney general. He's not writing it to the House and the Senate. And it's, a you know, I guess he didn't literally know uh, that the attorney general would make the report public in its entirety. I mean, in, in fact, that is what the attorney general did with a few redactions. So, you know, you write to your boss, people can read it and do what they want with it. Far be it from Bob Mueller to tell the House and Senate what they ought to do with his report. Yeah, he's, he, I think he signals them, but, he, but because the independent counsel statute doesn't exist, where under that statute he had a direct obligation to tell the, the, the judiciary committees and the intelligence committees what uh, was on his mind here that was foreclosed because of the special counsel regulations. That's right. The other thing I'm mindful of, look, I wasn't in that room um, where they worked for any of their decisions. I don't know what the countervailing pressures were. I don't know what all the counter arguments were. I mean, I have a sense of how I would have handled it. Um, I respect deeply how they chose to handle it, which is different than saying I would have made every decision the way they did in the same way, in the same order. I mean, you know, from being a prosecutor, uh, that sometimes behind closed doors, we fight like cats and dogs uh, over how we ought to approach an investigation or charge it um, or how we ought to adduce evidence or in what order or who should be subpoenaed and who should be immunized. We always argue over those things. And so it's not all that surprising that, you know, we might, people have a different view of what the Mueller team did and how they wrote the report and what recommendations they made. But I, again, I was not in the room for any of those conversations. Yeah. Last, last Mueller question, which again is tactical and, and you're correct to say neither of us are privy to all of the facts that drove their decision making. But one of the things that surprised me was Mueller's decision to allow the president to testify in writing. I, I, I'm not sure that I understand. So maybe you can help elucidate your thinking on that. Well, that's probably the one that baffles me the most. Um, It strikes me that the most important thing you can do if you're investigating Michael Zeldin is to figure is to figure out what Michael Zeldin is thinking. And the best way to figure out what he's thinking is to talk to him. Now, I understand that the president might have refused uh, to cooperate. He might have invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege. He might have fought the subpoena on other grounds, including the assertion of executive privilege. There could be a whole bunch of reasons why the Mueller team just thought they wouldn't get there or it would take too long. I completely get that. Um, But that was the one that I probably found most baffling uh, because it's in some ways, you know, the key to understanding what it is that Donald Trump thought and what he did and why he did it. 
Um, and you can get some of it by talking to other people. But the best way to get it, as you know, is by talking to Donald Trump. And written answers are pretty useless. I mean, I read the written answers that, uh, that the president submitted, uh, and they were obviously written by lawyers, heavily vetted, and um, almost completely uh, useless. Yeah, yeah. It will remain a mystery. And maybe I was going to say one day we'll go out to dinner with Mueller, but both of us have worked with him long enough to know that he doesn't go out to dinner with us. Well, even if we did, um, uh, I wouldn't ask him. And even if I asked him, he wouldn't tell us. And I do imagine that some of it was, uh, you know, a desire to get this investigation done quickly. Uh, it might have taken years to litigate some of the executive privilege questions. And so maybe the team made a decision that getting something on paper was better than getting nothing at all. Yeah. We yeah. weren't in the room. We weren't in the room. And we'll never really know unless somebody else on his team writes a tell-all book, which is, you know, again, another, another topic for conversation. So let's, let's turn, um, Chuck, to the current impeachment, impeachment number two. And maybe I could start by asking you sort of what you think of the article of impeachment, not only in terms of the case it makes, but as a charging document. Both of us have written indictments. We like to write indictments that tell a story so that the public and the jury um, understand, and not to mention the defendant, understand what, what we are thinking about their conduct. So tell me a little bit about your thinking as you read this article of impeachment. Yeah, I, I found it uh, incredibly narrow and unduly constrained. Uh, with, like you, uh, I always tried to write speaking indictments. Uh, that was a roadmap, I thought, for trial, uh, to adduce evidence, uh, and for the jury during its deliberations. And uh, speaking indictments for your listeners, Michael, are is exactly what it sounds like. It's a long sort of uh, narrative not just of the crime and the day it happened and who committed it, but everything leading up to it. And, um, you know, a speaking indictment in a complex case could run, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 pages easily. It also enables you to adduce that evidence at trial. I mean, one of the arguments you would make to a federal judge is you would say, Your Honor, uh, it's in the indictment. I've alleged this in the indictment. I'd like to be able to prove it at trial usually works, not always. Um, but this article of impeachment is incredibly narrow. Uh, I don't believe for a second that the impeachable offense, you know, started on January 6th or culminated on January 6th or only involved a phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State in addition uh, to the speech on the ellipse that the president gave. It runs much broader and much deeper than that, much longer and so if you analogize it to a criminal case or a criminal proceeding, um, this is not a speaking indictment. It does not tell the full story, and it is not very illuminating. Yeah, that's how, that's how when I read it, that's what I thought. I thought, well, first, there is a 76-page report that the House Judiciary Committee wrote, which explains everything, you know, from inception to the date of um, the insurrection. But I thought that the in, 
the charge, I want to keep saying indictment, that the article of impeachment could have been a little bit more narrative. It doesn't have to be 50 pages, but it could have said this all began on November X when the president first refused to accept the results of the certifications and it continued through and culminated in the events on um, January 6th. Right. I mean, if you just include uh, President Trump's tweets and his public pronouncements um, and then evidence of pressure that he applied to others, you just take that as part of this you know, sort of tapestry of evidence, you have a much longer story to tell. Now, you know, will they tell it? Uh, will the House managers tell it during the impeachment trial? We'll see. I don't know. But if I were trying a case in criminal court, uh, the hardest thing to prove always is intent. And the way you prove intent is by showing as much of a pattern as you possibly can. And that pattern you know, starts much, much earlier uh, than the January 6th speech at the Ellipse. Yeah. And in the indictment, in the article of impeachment, they say that there was a pattern of behavior. And I guess we're quarreling in some sense with them collectively we're quarreling with them that they didn't lay it out um, as sort of linearly as they, they, they can, because the, the, the event of the phone call to Georgia um, where he said to the state uh, secretary of state, you must find me these 1180 votes so that I can win. They write that after in the charging article, they write that after they have already written the um, January 6th. So they flip it in a way that it wasn't uh, according to the timeline of the events. Yeah, it wasn't chronological. That's right. Uh, by the way, I think it was 11,000 and some odd votes. Yeah. What did I say? Um, I think you said 1,100, but... Uh, yeah, 11,880. I wasn't a math major. I may have gotten that wrong too, but the, yeah, right. the point's a good one. But again, I don't think it's just those two events. I don't think it's a phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State and a speech on the ellipse on January 6th, it's obviously much broader than that. But, you know, a recurring theme, I think, of the conversation we're about to have, Michael, is that impeachment trials are very unlike criminal trials. And so the analogies that we're going to use are all um, imperfect. Yeah. So let's let's turn to that. Um, were you an impeachment manager? Were you, you know, sort of the one charged with the prosecuting of this case, how, 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 what's your approach? Because you've got two things going on. You've got the substance of did he incite a riot? Did he interfere with the um, election certification? And then you've got this jurisdictional question of does the Senate of the United States have the constitutional authority to try a former president. So again, you're right. It's not a criminal trial, but by analysis uh, and analogy, how how do you, how would you think about presenting it? Yeah. I mean, I think I would tackle the jurisdictional question first, because um, if you can't get past that, then your evidence sort of falls by the wayside. It seems like they're not going to get past the jurisdictional question. It seems like there's enough members of the Senate who don't believe or at least assert that they don't have the constitutional authority um, to try 
in the Senate a former president. I think that argument is nonsense um, for at least two reasons. Uh, reason number one, uh, as you all well know, Michael, there are two penalties that uh, can attend uh, in the Senate, uh, a president who is uh, impeached in the House. One is removal from office. That's moot. The president is, or, or I should say, former President Trump is former President Trump. He's out of office. There's nothing to remove. But there's a second penalty, which is disqualif disqualification from holding um, future federal office. And it wouldn't make any sense at all, structurally to me, um, to allow somebody to do something really, really bad uh, in the last week or two of their administration, and then to resign, uh, and thereby enabling them to avoid the second penalty, that disqualification. But I think there's another argument. So uh, everyone knows about the, um, the Nixon Supreme Court case, but they may not know about the Nixon Supreme Court case that I'm going to talk about. Uh, the one we know about was Richard Nixon in 1974, and it was an executive privilege uh, determination by the Supreme Court of the United States. But in 1993, there was another Nixon case, a guy named Walter Nixon, uh, no relation to Richard Nixon. Walter Nixon was a federal judge in Mississippi. Um, he was convicted of committing perjury before a federal grand jury. Uh, he refused to resign as a federal district court judge. And so he was impeached in the House and he was tried in the Senate. And the Senate used a procedure um, uh, pursuant to their rules of impeachment where a committee of the Senate heard evidence and then reported back to the full Senate its recommendation. And the full Senate then convicted him and removed him. Um, and that case went to the Supreme Court because uh, Judge Walter Nixon argued that the Senate's use of a committee to hear evidence against him deprived him of his right to a trial as envisioned by the Senate rules and by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court in the Walter Nixon case in 1993 said, nah, uh, which is Latin for um, you lose. What they were saying is uh, the, the Constitution uh, ascribes to the Senate the sole power to try cases of impeachment. And sole means sole. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, we have no role here. So uh, if, they have, if they had no role in the Walter Nixon impeachment case, it's hard for me to imagine that they would have any role in determining whether or not the Senate could try a former president. I might be wrong. Uh, obviously, this Supreme Court is different than the one that was sitting in 1993. But sole means sole. And so if the Senate determines that they have the authority uh, to try a former president, I imagine the Supreme Court, any Supreme Court, the Supreme Court stays the heck out of it. Yeah, that's what I would guess. And, and I think I agree with you that you raise the question of the justiciability of the case, the, the ability of the Senate to hear the case, notwithstanding the fact that uh, former President Trump is former President Trump and not current President Trump. And I think that they, I think that they get 51 votes to get to the merits of the case. It may be that Republican senators use that hook to acquit later on, but I think that they, they pass the threshold test of can we get to the substance of the evidence? 
And so let's assume that for our conversation that they have started the trial by saying um, that this Senate has the sole authority to set its own rules. And if it determines that it can try a former president, it can try a former president and let's get on with the trial and there'll be debate. And um, I think they get the 51 votes. They got 55 the first time around to um, on a similar question. So I think they get to, to the, the trial. And so let's assume Chuck that we're, we've passed that um, jurisdictional threshold. The trial is about to begin. And then they say, um, Mr. Rosenberg, call your first witness. Assuming there is uh, witnesses, you know, that's another thing. Impeachment trial number one was a witness free trial, but assuming there are witnesses, how, how would you present the case? And in that, in answering that question, who are you presenting it to? Yeah. Well, so really good and really difficult questions. In the first instance, you're presenting it to the Senate. They are your jurors. Um, if you don't win um, two thirds of the Senate, then you don't win a conviction. Uh, but I gather you're also presenting it to the American people. Now, you know, we use that formulation all the time. I'm not sure that lots of folks are paying really close attention um, to you know, the evidence that would be introduced in the Senate chamber, uh, but that is another audience. That is another jury. And you're also presenting it for history, right? So that's why, to answer your first question, I lay out a very thorough, very complete, very chronological case. Uh, I call as many witnesses as I can to put into evidence all of the president's um, attempts to undermine the election, to call into question the validity of the vote, to pressure state officials. Um, And I do it you know, going back as far as I possibly can, up through and including um, the uh, speech on the ellipse on January 6th, and I show what happened as a result. Now, you know, which witnesses do I call and in what order do I call them? I don't know, um, but it would be linear and it would be chronological. And I guess part of my question implies also categories of witnesses. Do Are, are you thinking about whether you'll call members of Congress who essentially were victims of the assault? Are you thinking that you'd call Capitol and Metropolitan Police Department officers who were victims of of the assault? Are you thinking that you will try to subpoena White House personnel, people who may have been in conversation with the president, especially in the immediate aftermath of the breach of the Capitol when news reports reflect that Speaker Pelosi and, 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 and Senator Schumer and others were imploring Trump to call in re- reinforcements. And it was two plus hours later before he finally did that. What, do you, what are you thinking about those categories of witness, especially the subpoenaing potentially of, of White House people? Yeah, so let me take that last one first, Michael, because, again, even if it's um, falsely asserted, you could run into the problem of the White House um, claiming executive privilege and trying to litigate your ability to talk to officials around the president. I don't believe those would be privileged conversations, um, 
but you don't want to litigate it because that just drags out your impeachment trial, perhaps for years. Um, categories of witnesses uh, certainly would call uh, folks who could put into evidence uh, the uh, tweets and the pronouncements of the president. You know, you don't have to do it the same way you would in federal court. You don't have to authenticate documents in the same way. Uh, you don't have to lay foundations for the admission of evidence in the same way. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier. I would certainly call victims. Um, Metropolitan Police Department officers, MPD is the police department for Washington, D.C., and Capitol Hill police officers, many of whom were injured, uh, some severely. We obviously know that one Capitol Hill police officer uh, was murdered. Uh, I would call rioters uh, to the extent that any of them uh, were uh, cooperating. Some may be cooperating now with the federal government as part of their criminal cases and may actually be available and may actually be available to House impeachment managers. You could consider calling them. I would call state election officials who were pressured by the president um, to change vote tallies, including in Georgia. So I think there are broad categories of people that you could call. I probably wouldn't call senators because they're jurors. And again, I know that the analogy to a federal criminal court is not perfect, um, but you have enough other people that you could call without calling senators. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's exactly right. That subpoenaing uh, people with the who are with the president is is collateral. It's important evidence. But it creates a collateral legal um, firestorm potentially that that you don't need. the the one The one thing that I was thinking, and we both in our um, life as prosecutors have used demonstrative evidence. We've used pictures to to tell a, a, a story. You know, we're both Rod Stewart fans, so every picture tells a thousand. You know, we we're we're well aware of that. Are you are you gonna? We I, I read in the newspaper that the house managers have hired a law firm to sort of make a a montage of some sort. I was thinking, were I a house manager, I would hire Steven Spielberg, you know, in a in a wag the dog sort of way, and really make a very compelling sort of six ish minute movie um, about what happened. What's your view of a of demonstrative evidence. How, how important would that be to your trial strategy here? Well, look, demonstrative evidence, uh, audio, video, uh, you know, uh, pictures uh, can be very compelling and very powerful. And many people are, vi are visual learners, as you well know. And so if done right, yes, absolutely. Uh, it helps to tell the story. And again, you don't have to meet all the requirements that you would have to meet if you were introducing it in federal court, although it's not all that hard to do in federal court either. So, you know, done well, done right, it can be extremely powerful. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're trying to make an impact on a jury, powerful is good. Yeah, I, I sort of think of it as I think of how I might present the case that that movie, which I have in my my mind, um, is in essence my closing statement. It's It's sort of to take your approach, this all started long time ago, and here are all of here, here chronologically is all that happened, and the logical consequence, the foreseeable consequence, which is sort of the language of incitement, um, was this riot 
and I'd like to show it to you. You know, maybe clipping in Trump's speeches or John Jr.'s speeches or Giuliani's speeches and then show him the show him the movie. Right. It makes sense to me. Uh, again, I think uh, that uh, sort of presentation done right can be extremely powerful. Yeah. So flipping the coin over, we, we've read uh, the president has just hired some new lawyers. He had a disagreement about legal strategy with, with his old lawyers. Um, it appears from the newspaper that uh, the president wanted his former lawyers to argue in the Senate that the election was stolen from him, that there was election fraud. And I guess, therefore, um, he was justified in doing all that he he did. How do you, we can talk about the various defenses in a minute, but how do you analyze this, this, these lawyers quitting over a, a dispute that, that seemed, it seemed to me at least, to raise in their minds legal ethics issues, not just tactics issues. So let's assume that the reporting is right and that the lawyers had ethical concerns, ethical qualms about what their client was asking them to do. You know, defense lawyers have a very difficult job. They have an obligation to their client and they have an obligation to the tribunal. And they have ethical rules that require that they tell the truth. Um, and all of those things are operating at the same time. And so, you know, if a client, let's say, wants to present evidence in a different order or call one witness but not another, you know, strategic considerations, uh, the client wins. Lawyer makes recommendations, but the client wins. But if the client wants the lawyer to do something that is unethical, uh, to conceal something from the tribunal or to make false statements, then the lawyer wins. But the way a lawyer wins is by quitting, right? Lawyer can't talk about what the client uh, asked them to do. They still have an ethical obligation in most cases to the client. It can be overcome, but it's a topic for a different day. Um, but they have to leave. They, they cannot work with that client. And so it seems to me, and we only know this partly from reporting, uh, that the lawyers did the right thing. They did the ethical thing. They could not advance the arguments that the client wanted them to, uh, to advance and do it ethically and do it um, given their duty of candor to the tribunal. So they left. That's what you have to do. Right. So how does a new set of lawyers coming in, knowing that, reach a different judgment? Well, let's see if they've reached a different judgment. Um, I don't know what it is they're going to present. Uh, but if they go with the election was stolen argument, I would be deeply disappointed. Um, and I would have questions about their ethical compass. Yeah. So I take it your first line of defense is jurisdictional also. If the, if the House manager's first hurdle to overcome is you, the Senate, have jurisdiction to hear this case. I suppose you start your case um, on a jurisdictional um, ground, moving essentially to dismiss the case, um, again, renewing that argument about jurisdiction. 
Yeah, I mean, if I were representing President Trump, which is about as likely as me starting in center field for the Washington Nationals next season. Um, Although I hear you're under consideration for that. So, well, I, I don't know which job I'm under consideration <laughs> for, but presumably, Michael, neither of them. Um, but if I were President Trump's lawyer representing him in this impeachment trial, absolutely. I start with the jurisdictional issue for two reasons. One, it's a threshold matter, right? If there is no jurisdiction, then you're done. But two, I already know from press reporting that it appeals to a whole bunch of senators. And so, you know, by driving home that point and shoring up my base, even if the trial proceeds and even if the House managers end up adducing more evidence, I know that I have made a winning argument to a sufficient number of senators to help acquit my client. So that's absolutely where I start. So you start there, but the Senate says, you know what, Mr. Rosenberg, we think we have um, a basis to, to proceed, just as we said at the outset, let's, you know, get on with your substantive d- defense. Is your first substantive defense a First Amendment-based defense? Where, where, where are you starting your defense? The House managers have laid out this chronology when you were their advisor, they took your advice. Then all of a sudden, you didn't get the senator, you didn't get the Washington senator's senator fielded job, but you did get the president's counsel job. And um, he says, "All right, what what's our first substantive uh, line of defense?" Well, I'm not sure it's a First Amendment defense, although I see the attraction of that, and I understand why you asked it. I think what I try and do is show that whatever happened, it wasn't the president's intent to incite a riot. I go to intent because intent, and again, this is only, this is strictly hypothetical because I cannot imagine in a million years um, uh, defending uh, the former president Trump in any venue, let alone the Senate. But intent is always the most difficult thing for prosecutors to prove. It requires getting into the head of the defendant. In fact, we just talked about that, Michael, with respect to the Mueller report and to the decision, the determination uh, not to try and question the president with respect to some of the obstruction of justice issues. And so I make the argument that the president's language may have been unfortunate. It may have been reckless. It may have been passionate. It may have been rhetorical. But the last thing that he intended if I were arguing on his behalf, uh, was for anyone to storm the Capitol uh, and, uh, you know, hurt uh, officers and uh, bystanders. You know, does that prevail? Do I win? Uh, I don't know. In my heart of hearts, I believe it's absolutely what the president intended. Um, But if I were his counsel, I would try to make the argument that he did not intend that outcome. Yeah. And why I say First Amendment sort of dovetailing with this, which is to say that Supreme Court precedent in the area of political speech allows for hyperbolic speech. It allows for fighting words. It allows for the demagogues to be demagogues as long as they don't have the immediate impact of incitement that is allowable yeah. speech. I get that, but I think it's that's a razor's edge for the president 
because he would have to argue that, you know, I am a demagogue and it was demagogue. I can't say that word. Help me, Michael. Demagogue speech. I was, I was demagoguing. I was, yeah. Thank you. Um, he would have to say, look, I'm a demagogue and that's the way I talk. Um, and it was a heated and it was passionate, but I'm entitled to do that. Events be damned because the first amendment protects me. I think I would rather argue on his behalf. Again, I had to argue on his behalf uh, that I didn't intend this outcome. Whatever you may think of what I said, I never intended this outcome. And to your point, you know, the First Amendment sort of plays into that, but I see it as an ancillary argument. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting as I think about um, the defense of the president, a lot has been made, and we've talked about how the president embarked on this months-long campaign to delegitimize or prevent the certification of the election by filing frivolous lawsuits all around the country where he lost each and every one of them. But might the double edge or the razor's edge, to use your description of that argument, be that it can't be that a person is chargeable with an impeachable high crime and misdemeanor for pursuing in the courts that which they have a right to pursue. And after all, the argument would be made, no court um, sanctioned any of the lawyers for filing these lawsuits. There was no um, sanction for frivolous lawsuits. So that implies they had some modicum of merit, even though they they lost. So you can't, my my point being, you can't then charge my client with conducting an impeachable offense for, for pursuing his rights in court. Yeah, I, think. I think that, so I, I generally agree with you. Look, I think the lawsuits were, to put it mildly, to put it kindly, Michael, frivolous. Uh, I think they were absurd. Um, they lost, I believe, every single lawsuit that they filed in every state and federal court in which they filed them in numerous states, uh, perhaps with one exception where I think they got some minor concession out of a Pennsylvania court. That's right. Regarding how close election observers could be to the uh, folks counting the ballots. But again, you're inviting a problem. If as a house manager, you want to, um, you know, predicate your, your prosecution on this, because between the president and the courts are a whole bunch of lawyers who I hope in good faith brought these cases. They don't seem to be brought in good faith. As I said, they seem absurd on their face. Um, but nevertheless, you know, licensed lawyers put their names on lawsuits and filed them in court around the country. It happens every single day. They lost. That also happens every single day. But I believe in some ways, at least legally, they insulate the president from the garbage that they were filing. Yeah, that's that's that's, you know, again, we know in our hearts that these were frivolous lawsuits. I would remark um, to my wife, also a former federal prosecutor, that I can't believe none of these lawyers have been sanctioned by the courts, but 
but they weren't. And so I guess if I'm President Trump's lawyer, a likelihood um, as slim as you're being hired, um, I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue that. Right. I think there's a, also another problem. Uh, we just talked about this with respect to executive privilege. You asked whether you would call people around the president while he was president uh, to find out what he was saying. To do this, you might have to call people who were representing the Trump campaign and the president who filed these suits in court. And so you would have perhaps another frivolous assertion of privilege, in this case, perhaps a frivolous assertion of attorney-client privilege that would preclude House managers from getting the information that we're even talking about, further delaying the action. So this is not the way I would go if I were the House manager. Yeah, but but if you're the... the def- but you raise a great point because we're talking about the, the affirmative defense that the president could put on, and we're, and we're speculating whether or not he puts on an argument that says lawyers in good faith who sign their names to this litigation felt it was meritorious enough to file these lawsuits. And therefore you can't tell me that I've engaged in, a, in impeachable offenses for pursuing the rights that I have as any American citizen to litigate what I think is uh, an, a, a grievance. But that raises the prospect of who does he put on the stand to, to make that point? And, well, and he, he could just assert it and the house manager would have a difficult time rebutting it. Remember, we're not in real court. We're in Senate court. Right, 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 right. Last last point I wanted to talk to you about on the defense of the president's side of things is this notion of the president incited members of the of the Senate or Congress to vote against the certification. And that was a uh, an overt act, if you will, in the in in this fraudulent effort that he has embarked on. But again, if we're defending the president, asking a senator or congressman to assert rights that he or she has under the Constitution to contest the certification, how does that rise to the level of impeachable conduct where you're imploring senators to do what the Constitution empowers them to do? Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. You know, as you well know, not every overt act in a criminal conspiracy charged in real federal criminal court has to be a crime in and of itself, right? Some acts simply make up the tapestry of a crime. Example, um, you and I, Michael, decide to rob a bank. Um, I put gas in the getaway car. Putting gas in the getaway car is not a crime. Robbing the bank is a crime. But if I'm telling the story, I might include that overt act um, and present it to the jury because our getaway turned out to be, you know, a 300-mile drive from the scene of the crime, and we needed a full tank of gas. And so I think I would tell that as part of the story if I were a House impeachment manager. But you're right. I don't know that you predicate an impeachment on the assertion of a – even on the uh, on the um, bad faith assertion of a constitutional right. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think that it gives Trump's lawyers something to argue in defense to the seventeen Republicans yeah. that they're trying to prevent from bolting. You know, and, and as lawyers sometimes do, I worry that we are getting um, 
lost in the forest here. I mean, what happened was the president incited a riot. He tried to undermine the electoral vote. He called into question the sanctity of our elections. I mean, if that's not impeachable, I'm not sure what is. It's a horrifically bad thing to do. The Senate will now decide whether or not he ought to be disqualified from ever holding office again. You know, we're making all of these, I think, interesting legal arguments and talking at the margins about how we would present the case. But let's not forget what he did, which was deplorable. It was vile. Um, in some ways, you know, we talk about presenting this long chronological linear tapestry. There's also an argument to be made for just going right to the core of what happened. Yeah, and, and, and maybe that's your rebuttal. Maybe you have laid out your chronology in the opening of your case. The Trump lawyers have said privilege and um, First Amendment and Twelfth Amendment and, and all of these things. And then you reply by saying, this is all well and good among you lawyers having this law talk stuff. But at its very heart, this is what took place here. And if and to your and you close almost by saying, and if this is not impeachable, members of the Senate, tell me what is. At its core, it was an attempt by the sitting president of the United States to undermine our democracy. Full stop. Yeah. And then you sit down. So now you've sat down and the, the, the Senate uh, votes to to acquit um, because it's a political decision and they've made a political calculus and so it goes. But you're, you've now been hired back into the Justice Department and you're in charge, you're the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. And, and you've got all of this conduct occurring within your jurisdiction. What are your, what's your thoughts about charging, not the, not as the U.S. Attorney called them, the alligators, the people who marched into the Capitol and, and, and did destruction of property and, and all of those things, but the inciters, the Trump team, what's your, what do you have? I know we don't have all the evidence and it's impossible to answer this question without the evidence, but do you have a, a sort of an intuitive sense of, of how you think about criminal charges against these insiders? Well, let's assume we have the evidence and the question is only a policy question, whether we charge or don't charge. Is that right? Could be. Yeah, that could be the way to answer it. All right. So I go back to Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. And Ford was excoriated at the time for it. And I think history and time has showed that he made the right decision. Um, and when Ford testified about that pardon, how, what a quaint notion this is in front of the Congress, which had asked for his testimony, and he agreed, um, he said, you know, as a nation, we have to look forward and not back. We have a lot of problems that we need to solve. And spending the next three years talking about Richard Nixon is not the way to do that. Now, when I think about that, and again, I think Ford had it exactly right. I recognize that Nixon was quite different. Nixon resigned. Nixon displayed a degree of contrition. Nixon, and people forget this, and now I'm talking about the old Nixon Supreme Court case, right, when they determined that he did not have executive privilege and had to turn over 
uh, documents and um, audio tapes that had been subpoenaed by the special prosecutor, Nixon complied with that, right? So Donald Trump is very different than Richard Nixon. And maybe Richard Nixon in some ways earned a pardon. Uh, Donald Trump has not been contrite. Uh, Donald Trump did not resign. And it's hard to imagine, uh, given the obstructive behavior that the Mueller team documented, that Donald Trump would have complied uh, with a court order the way Richard Nixon did. So does he deserve a Ford pardon? I don't know. It's a really hard question. But again, the core of Ford's reasoning, I think, still holds in some ways that um, I'd rather not spend the next three years talking about Donald Trump. But he is markedly different, in my view, than Richard Nixon uh, and has not earned, um, you know, I think the in, in, in any way, Michael, has not earned sort of the grace that Ford demonstrated to Nixon. Yeah, yeah. And I expect if you're President Biden, the last thing you want to do is spend the next year in criminal court litigating whether or not people should be charged uh, on a crime. I think that they have to be thinking we've got to move beyond this also. Right. But of course, look, state prosecutors don't need um, uh, the Justice Department's permission to charge uh, former President Trump if he violated state law. They don't need to ask uh, President Biden or the Biden administration for permission to move forward. So we may end up in a situation where we are spending the next three years talking about former President Trump, regardless of what the Justice Department decides to do. Yeah, that's possibly that's possibly correct. We're, we're coming on sort of the end of the conversation, but I, I can't let you go, Chuck, without asking you two quick categories of, of and they're not, nothing is quick, but you were the head of the DEA. So you had a lot of law enforcement agents uh, working for you, police effectively, policemen effectively. And if you had federal joint um, task force, you actually had um, policemen and DEA agents uh, working under your general jurisdiction. There was a colossal policing failure here at the, at the Capitol, both as a matter of sharing of intelligence and as a matter of numbers of, of, of boots on the, on the ground. And we're, we're seeing data now that says that of the first 150 people arrested, 14%, 21 of the 150 of them were either current or former members of the military as compared to 6% of the general population. What's your take on what happened wearing your sort of law, your policeman's hat, your DEA administrator sort of hat? It's a hard question, right? So when an airplane crashes, there's typically not one cause. There are multiple cascading failures. And whether it was an intelligence failure or the failure to share intelligence, which is, I guess, another type of intelligence failure, bad training, bad preparation, um, lack of imagination, um, lack of clear lines of authority, which seems to be at play here, Michael, there's a whole bunch that went wrong. Um, and so I'm not sure I can tell you quickly or efficiently um, that I have yet to put my finger 
on all of the problems. They are multiple. They are serious. They have to do with um, recruiting and training. They have to do with intelligence and the sharing of intelligence. Uh, I think we need to take a very hard look at what happened and get a, a sort of 9-11 commission overview of these failures. You know, we're really good at solving um, problems that have happened, uh, but it's that failure of imagination to anticipate the next sort of crisis or attack or failure that we struggle with. Um, this is deeply concerning. And to your point, uh, the number of military or ex-military um, you know, or police officers, current and former, who are part of the mob, um, deeply concerning to me uh, and something that we need to address as a society. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, the word complicity um, is raised a lot and how complicit were um, members of, of, of the National Guard and or um, police um, with, with the, the rioters. Now, I say that knowing full well that there were many, many very heroic um, police officers and military personnel stationed um, around the Capitol doing everything they can to prevent this riot. Overwhelmingly, yeah. right, the vast majority of men and women charged with protecting uh, the Capitol um, and protecting human life and property did their jobs and did them honorably and well. That Overwhelmingly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there weren't failures, and it um, doesn't mean we ought not look at them very carefully. So my last question is, what what didn't I ask you, Chuck? What 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 should um, our listening audience take away from um, this conversation? What's your you know sort of how do you see it playing out? What 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 do you what's your parting um, thoughts here? I was always told, Michael, never to ask that, never to answer that open-ended question uh, at the end of an interview um, because it's dangerous. Uh, the only parting I can Mirandize you if you'd like. The only parting thought I have is that um, what a pleasure it is to sit down and talk with you. You know, these are really interesting topics. They're hard. Uh, they're nuanced. They're layered. They're complex. And they don't lend themselves to quick conversations. And so if your listeners and I are still with us at the end of this conversation, and I hope they are, um, you know, they'll realize a couple of things. Um, we don't have all the answers. Right? We're trying our best to figure this thing out on the fly. Um, and that people of goodwill come down on different sides of these really hard questions. Um, but that's what makes them so interesting. Chuck Rosenberg, you're the best. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, uh, Michael. Thanks for having me on your podcast. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.